Thank you, Danny. Let's pray together. Father, as we look at the pages of history, we know that Israel wandered from you, yet you pursued them. Christ ultimately came. And it's through Christ that we have forgiveness, we have a relationship with you. And it would be our desire, Father, to be sensitive to you, not drifting and wandering as Israel did. As we interact with a portion of your word from Mark this morning, we want to be doers of your word, not hearers only. We want to live with Christ as our life, with a deep sensitivity as we have fellowship with your spirit. For it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. As you consider what is happening in our country, you probably have run across people that very, very strongly fight against God. They're trying to prove that he did not create. They're trying to prove that God is not alive. If you watch the movie God is Not Dead, the same thing came out. You know, a professor trying to rant and rave against and prove God is not. My question would be, why do people try to fight against and disprove someone, God, if he doesn't exist. There's no need to resist someone if he does not exist. The very fact that there's resistance indicates God does exist. But many times I think we can ask questions. So you're talking to someone and say, I don't believe in God, but yet they rant and rave against him. Why do you rant and rave and try to disprove someone who does not exist? Questions many times challenge people to think. And as we read Mark 12, verses 18 through 27, we will find that Jesus uses questions. In the overall context of verses 13 through 34, Jesus uses questions in responding to the Pharisees and the Herodians as they pose questions about paying taxes to Caesar. In verses 18 through 27, the Sadducees bring up the whole issue of the resurrection. And Jesus poses some questions. In verses 28 through 34, we find that Jesus is responding to a teacher of the law. And when he asks Jesus, you know, which is the greatest commandment? Questions are valuable in life. Let's read together Mark 12, beginning with verses 18 through 27. And keep in mind that Mark is revealing Christ and who he is and his character, his being, his identity. And that leads up to the work of Christ on the cross and the resurrection. But who Christ is in his character, identity, and being is so very, very vital because if he is not who he claimed to be, we have no death. We have no resurrection. Mark 12, verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow. But he also died, leaving no child. 
It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not an heir because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses and the account of the bush how God said to him, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the living. You are badly mistaken. The Pharisees and the Herodians failed to catch Jesus in his words in verses 13 through 17. Instead, they were amazed at his response. Now we have the Sadducees coming to him to pose a question. Again, with an intent to corner him, to catch him in his words. But they don't do very well at it either, just as the Pharisees and Herodians did not. This is the only account in the book of Mark or the gospel of Mark where Jesus had an exclusive interview, if you want to call it that, with the Sadducees. Of the several parties and sects in Judaism and first century Palestine, Jewish life was basically dominated by the Sanhedrin. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were involved in that. And these people, the Sadducees, were at odds with the Pharisees, going in different directions, but yet coming together to try to corner Jesus. The Pharisees believed in divine sovereignty. The Sadducees affirmed free will alone. The Pharisees believed in angels and demons. The Sadducees did not believe in angels and demons. The Pharisees accepted the Torah, first five books of the Old Testament, the writings and the prophets and oral tradition. The Sadducees only accepted the first five books, the Torah of the Old Testament. The Pharisees affirmed the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees denied the resurrection of the dead. And the differences between these two groups did not stop at doctrine. The Sadducees and the Pharisees differed on another point, on social and political matters. The Sadducees were primarily a clerical or nobility group associated with the priesthood. The Sadducees, like the priesthood, belonged to the highest social group of the Jewish society. They were men of wealth, marked with rank, to quote Josephus. The association of the Sadducees with the priesthood meant that their influence was focused on the temple and in operations associated with it. And this writer of Scripture says, then, apparently, immediately after what happened with the Pharisees, the Sadducees came on the scene, and they say there's no resurrection. Keep in mind, they say there's no resurrection, but they ask a question about the resurrection. And on a lighter note, you know why the Sadducees are called Sadducees? They believe in no resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. 
They don't believe in a resurrection. And that's not where their name came from, by the way. But their belief was there's no resurrection. Like the Pharisees and the Herodians, they use a question. They have an intent to corner Jesus. Their question. Teacher. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife with no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. And then they go on to describe, and their question is, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her. See, the Sadducees believed that at death, the soul perished along with the body. And hence, there was no future rewards, there was no future punishment. And the doctrine of the resurrection is only vaguely referred to in the Old Testament in Isaiah 26, Ezekiel 37, Daniel 12, Psalm 73, but it is there. By Jesus' day, there was a pretty strong belief in the resurrection, not only among the Pharisees, but the majority of the Jews. But the Sadducees did not accept the resurrection, but nevertheless, their question about the resurrection. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy chapter 25. The Sadducees are asking, I guess, perhaps a legitimate question in light of Deuteronomy 25. They were familiar with the law of Moses. And in Deuteronomy 25 and verse 5, as the law of Moses is being discussed, Deuteronomy 25 and verse 5, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law. The first son shall bear, the first son she bears shall carry the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, my husband's brother refuses to carry out his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of the town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. So we find the Sadducees know the law. They're appealing to the law with their question. But it would be like my brother Orv marrying Diane and Orv were to die early in life. Then Bob is expected to marry Diane to raise up a child, and then Bob dies, and then I'm expected to marry, and then I die, and my brother Ron is expected. And that's basically their question. There's seven brothers. They all die, but none of them leave offspring. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? since the seven were married to her. The Sadducees 
in their question, thought they had a brilliant, clever trick designed to explode what they considered the superstition of life after death. In the minds of the Sadducees, simple wit and common sense are sufficient to reduce the idea of the resurrection to an absurdity. Their question is framed on the Pharisees and the rabbinical assumption that the world to come is essential, essentially an extension of earthly conditions, including the married state, although under more glorious conditions. Marriage here, marriage there. That's the intent of the question of the Sadducees. The question of the Sadducees is based on the assumption of monogamy rather than polygamy as a marriage ideal. The impossibility of a woman being married to seven men in heaven intends in their minds to render the whole concept of the resurrection ridiculous. If Jesus were to accept the assumption that the life to come stands in unbroken continuity with the present, he would either have to argue on technical grounds, perhaps, the first husband had the rights to the woman in heaven or concede to the Sadducees. They're thinking, we got them cornered. What does Jesus do? Jesus responds, are you not an heir because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? They prided themselves in knowing the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, but his response, are you not in error? Why? Because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Religious people who thought they had a corner on the truth, you're in error. You're wandering off the track, you're being led astray. Why? Because you do not know the scriptures and you don't know God. Almost all theological error can be traced to not knowing the scriptures or not knowing the power of God. They were in error because, again, they didn't know the scriptures and they did not know the power of God. Religious people not knowing scripture but, and not knowing the power of God. Verse 25, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Jesus just states a fact. This is the way it's going to be. Now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead. But the living, you are badly mistaken. If you go back to Exodus chapter 3, when Moses is being called by God to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, that God said, as he appeared to him, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, does anyone know how much time there was between Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses?
That's your homework for this week. But Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all dead when God called Moses. But when God calls Moses, he says, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The point in citing this reference by Jesus declares that God is the God of living, not dead. So if Moses is being told by God, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God is saying, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are living during the time of Moses. Oh, they died, but I'm the God of the living. They died physically, but they are alive. The argument of Jesus for the reality of the resurrection is based on the assumption that the call of God establishes a relationship with God And once the relationship with God is established, it bears the promise of God and cannot be ended ever, even by death. The relationship is the result of a promise and power of God that conquers the last enemy itself, death. See, it would be like God saying, I'm the God of Ron Killian. And saying, I'm the God of Ron Killian, he's saying Ron Killian is living, even though he is not here. I'm the God of Dora Sando, saying that she is living, even though Doris passed away. I'm the God of Jan Shane, even though Jan died physically. God's still being the God of her because... She's living. That's his point. I'm the God of the living. I'm not the God of the dead, you know, in in light of their question. And Jesus says then, in verse 27, you are badly mistaken. Badly mistaken means that you're way off base. It's like a plane landing in L.A., thinking they're landing in New York. They're really off base. And Jesus is saying, you Sadducees, you're just way off base. You don't know what you're talking about because you don't know the power of God and you don't know the Scriptures. If truth is to be asserted, its opposite must be denied. The belief of the Sadducees is contrary to and incompatible with the truth of God. And the only hope of correcting it, if it can be corrected, is not to ignore it, but to expose it. The ultimate answer to the Pharisees, however, is not the interpretation or even the authority of Jesus, but the life of Jesus. For the empty tune will verify his teaching to the Sadducees. Jesus does not simply announce the resurrection. He is the resurrection. Religious people, not knowing the power of God, not knowing the scriptures. 
The writer of Hebrews tells us the patriarchs knew that the covenant promises transcended earthly life and were eternal. Hebrews 11 and verse 10 says, Abraham was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Hebrews says that all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. They admitted they were aliens and strangers on earth. Verse 16 of Hebrews 11 says, Indeed, or instead rather, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. The eternal God does not covenant with creatures that live only three score and ten years and then go out like a candle. He covenants with people for eternity. The Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection, but ask a question about a resurrection. And Jesus says, you're sadly mistaken. You're way off base. What's the point of this passage? The capstone. Going back to Mark 12 and verse 11. The capstone, Jesus knows the law and is a God of the living. Stop and ponder that. The capstone, Jesus, the stone, the builders rejected the stone, but Jesus has become the capstone. He knows the law. He knows Scripture. And He's the God of the living. We're dealing with a God who is powerful. People may die, but he's still the God of the living. Time may pass, but he still has given us Scripture. So let's think about this for a few moments and some application. Religious leaders who are not responsive to Christ show it by seeking to confront some teaching with questions or other forms of attack to destroy what they see as the opposition. So here we have religious leaders, the Pharisees, who are trying to destroy Jesus by using questions. That happens today. Religious people today, and I say religious, I'm being very broad, will ask, how can a loving God condemn people to hell? I've been asked that numerous times down through the years by religious people. And by the way, I consider evolution a religion. And all the other isms of the world are some type of religion. But how can a loving God condemn people to hell? May I ask a follow-up question? How can a loving God... Give his son as a sacrifice for people who are rebellious to him. If you want to pose a question about a loving God in hell, you have to come back to Jesus Christ and the fact that he came among humanity so that there could be life. We could spend more time on that, but we won't. How can a good, 
powerful God allow innocent people to suffer? If you follow the news at all, how can a good God allow people in Iraq who have the name of Christian to suffer like they have been in recent months? If he's good and if he's powerful, how can he allow innocent people to suffer? I'm not going to give a detailed answer to that. But I think we generally forget Genesis 2 and 3. That suffering today is related to what Adam and Eve chose to do as they yielded to the temptation of the serpent. They're just thinking, striving to respond. Perhaps we need to stop and ask, how often do we go astray at our strong points? The Sadducees went astray at their strong point. They knew the Torah. They knew the first five books of the Old Testament. They were theologically astute. But that's where they went astray. They didn't know Scripture. They didn't know the power of God. Maybe we need to stop and think and ask questions and ponder. I'll give an example from my own life. Ruth and I were dating and we agreed that we had to make some theological shifts one way or the other. She had to or I had to. So she said, go talk to my pastor. And I said to Ruth Ann, I'll go talk to your pastor, but I want to tell you before I even talk to him that he won't change my mind. <laughs> now, my mind was made up. The Sadducees' mind was made up. We preach, we teach reconciliation to God. Do we model it in our relationships? No, do we strive to live reconciled lives? Just posing a question. We may preach reconciliation to God. Do we try to model that in our relationships? So someone says, Pastor Dan, how are you doing? I say, pretty good. How's your wife doing? Well, she's not doing very good. Why is she not doing very good? Well, she didn't treat me very well. And uh, I've been angry at her. Well, how long have you been upset at her? Oh, probably a couple years now. But yet you claim to be reconciled to God? And you're not willing to seek to be reconciled? Well, she's just an old stubborn woman. So, you know, there's something wrong here, you know. My strong point, here I'm a pastor, preaching reconciliation, but not willing to be reconciled with my wife, even though she begs for that. Another example, we claim Scripture is our standard. What do we obey? Ah, we stand on Scripture. Do we obey? Just hospitality as an example. Scripture says a fair amount about being hospitable. See, we can pick and choose. We, we can go astray in our strong point. We claim salvation is by Christ alone. But how much do and effort do we teach? If salvation is by Christ and Christ alone, 
how much of our teaching tells people what to do to be a good Christian? I'm just posing a question. If we're not careful, we end up being known as Christianity, a religion of do. What do I have to be, or I'm sorry, what do I have to do to be a good Christian? I suggest to you that in Christ, I've been redeemed, I've been forgiven, I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, I've been justified, I've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, Christ is my life. Period. Well, pastor, you have to be doing. All my doing will not change my standing before God because my standing before God is dependent upon Christ. See, living in sensitivity to what we have in Christ is a response to Christ. See, Christ came to give himself And as we have Christ as our life, then we respond to that in daily living as we walk worthy of our calling, being humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another, and so on. One final application. Keep Scripture in its context. This is vital. It prevents false teachings. The Sadducees kind of pulled Deuteronomy somewhat out of context. Keep Scripture in its context. As we read, as we discuss Scripture, keep it in context. Jesus laid aside his deity to come to earth. Did you know that? I remember talking to people who have come to our door over the years quite often. Jesus laid aside his deity to come to this earth. He was just a man. I say, you need to read Philippians 2, 9 through 11 also, where he was highly exalted. Christ was the God-man. But you've got to read the context. So very, very important. Use questions in daily life, but keep in mind that God is the God of the living, not the dead. Know his power in day-by-day living. In light of the majestic character, being, identity, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, have you come to the point of repentance of sin and faith in Christ? Mark is all about Jesus. Do you have a relationship with him? If you have an ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ, does it reflect the fact that God is the God of the living? What in your life this week can you attribute solely to God? (coughs) Nothing else to blame it on if you want to use the word blame. It's just God because we're dealing with the God 
of the living. All that we have discussed about Christ this morning was demonstrated as a reality through the cross and through the resurrection. I invite you to take your hymnals and turn to 247 as Travis comes to lead us.